Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. My name is Dan Carson, and I'm the pastor of Family Ministries at Calvary. We would love for you to come and join us as we worship together at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Our worship service begins at 1030 on most Sundays, but know this coming Sunday, January 1st, New Year's Day, we will have one service at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So if you have any questions, be sure just to reach out to us. You can find a way to contact us through our website, calvaryfayville.com. Email us at info at calvaryfayville.com and we can answer any of those questions. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is concluding a four-week series that we've been delving into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, talking about the names given to the soon-coming Messiah, Jesus. And today, we're looking at Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. Let's listen together. Isaiah chapter 9, for one more Sunday, is our text, page number 573 in the Pew Bibles. Many musicians and writers of poetry this side of heaven will admit that some of their finest work comes when they have experienced a death or a tragedy of some kind that their best writing often comes out of their greatest pain. You may not be a musician, you may not be a poet, but certainly that is true for all of us. Some of the most important, life-changing lessons that have the greatest impact on us and our futures come out of our greatest suffering. And Jason just alluded to it a while ago before uh, we sang that song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And once or twice over the 10 Christmases or so that I have um, been your pastor, you've heard me once or twice give you a little bit of background to that hymn. And such was the case with the poet who gave us the words of that hymn, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And within the poem, within the song, he captures the years of despair from the horrors of the Civil War as well as personal tragedy. Let me take just a moment to kind of put that hymn in context for you in light of our message today. On April the 12th, 1861, were the opening shots of the American Civil War. They were fired on that day. Less than three months later, Longfellow's wife was tragically burned to death in their home. It wasn't the loss of the home, she was and her long flowing gowns got too close to the fireplace. Her gowns caught on fire. She burned to death. Their home was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. After the first Christmas, after her death, Longfellow wrote these words. How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. 
Well, just a little over a year later, in December of 1863, Longfellow received word that his oldest son, Charles, who had been very sick for a number of months in the camp where his uh, particular group of soldiers were, finally saw battle only to be severely wounded in a battle in Virginia. And his son Charles came back home and it wasn't sure whether he would live or die. It kind of puts that uh, verse three in the context of his song that reads, or his poem, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. At the birth of Christ, the verses we read a moment ago in starting the service, the angels proclaimed that heavenly message, that message that Longfellow said was mocked by the hatred he was experiencing and knew in the world. The angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Where do you find that? I mean, pick up the newspaper, or if you read the paper on your iPad, pick up your iPad. <laughs> Newspapers are kind of almost a bygone thing, are they not? Turn on the TV, and you'll see that that mankind is making a mockery or attempting to of the message of the angels. There is no peace on earth. Historians and statisticians say that since the beginning of recorded history, that goes back more than 3,500 years, that history has been meticulously recorded, that over those 3,500 plus years, there have only been 286 years of peace on earth. Less than 8% of man's experience. And that's especially shocking when during that same time, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties have been made and signed and broken. We are so good at making treaties and offering up ceasefires and assigning peacekeeping forces to try to bring about, in man's way, some kind of peace on earth. But they all get broken, just like almost every promise that friends have made to each other or that husbands have made to wives and wives have made to husbands. So many of those are broken and even many times under our own roofs, there is no peace among brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, parents and children. And times like this, holidays, it seems to accentuate and emphasize the pain of our lack of peace. Well, our text in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two says this, 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And understand at the time that Isaiah was carrying out his prophetic ministry, it was a dark day. But he speaks of a light that is to come. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. When you go down to verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born. Nothing unusual about that. But this child is a son that has been given. That's only happened one time. And it's Jesus, the Son of God, and his birth. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we know that this prophecy is speaking of not only the first coming of Jesus, but it's also speaking of the next coming of Jesus. It speaks not only of the first advent, but it speaks also of the advent on which we wait, the second advent, when indeed he will establish peace a peace that will know no end. We long for that day, do we not? When all of our battles, all of our heartaches, all of our disturbances, everything that causes worry, everything, every competing allegiance in our lives, everything that robs us of the peace of the Lord, will be taken away and the Prince of Peace will be here. I want to suggest to you that we will not know that until he comes back, but we can know it to a great degree in the kingdom of our own hearts if we will allow him to be our Prince of Peace. I want to walk through this just very quickly with you, if I may, and I want you to go ahead, if you wouldn't, and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, because I want us to see an example of how Jesus is that great peacemaker, and we find it in the writing of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. So Ephesians chapter 2, just get there and hang on to it, and let me take just a moment to explain to you what we're talking about when the Bible talks about peace. The Old Testament word used here is shalom. It is the Hebrew word for peace. And what exactly is that? And I wanna say to you this, peace is not just an absence of conflict. It's not just the time when when there is a a, a ceasefire. The stories are told. Maybe you've read them or seen them portrayed uh, in film. During the awful days, the just 
terrible days of trench warfare during World War I in places like France and, and uh, thereabouts in, in uh, Europe. And the trench warfare was just uh, responsible for the death of millions of soldiers. It was an awful time. It was awful uh, in every aspect of the trenches of both sides, the Germans and the Americans and British and French on the other side. And, and they would be fighting one another and they would make a few yards one day and be driven back the next day. And, and they were so close together uh, in those days of that trench warfare that, that they could hear one another speaking in German and in English back and forth. And it was just a, almost a complete stalemate that drug out month after month after month doing nothing under those miserable, wet, muddy, cold conditions, but to just take more lives. And you'd have a, a great push by one side only to lose that ground again and fight for it and bleed for it on another day. But when Christmas Eve came, Everything came to a stop because you see, both sides of this great conflict believed in the, in the birth and celebrated the birth of Christ. And there were many Christians on both sides fighting one another. And there were times recorded when, when on Christmas Eve and even on Christmas Day, they not only ceased fire, but they went over and got with the others, their enemies, and around campfires shared stories and sang Christmas carols and shared what meager rations they had only less than 24 hours later to go back to their trench and to begin shooting once again at one another. And you'd hear the words of, of maybe a, an American or a British soldier call out, is that you Hans? And Hans would answer, and then they would start firing at one another again. But for a brief time, they had peace. That's the way man's peace works. You know what someone said a ceasefire really is? When you have a ceasefire, if Ukraine and Russia come to the point that they have a ceasefire, you know what a ceasefire really is? It's just the time when everyone takes a deep breath and reloads for the next battle. That's all it is. And that's kind of the way it is for us. Peace in the Bible, though, is more than an absence of conflict. It is certainly that. But there's the positive aspect that peace is the presence of health and holiness, of harmony and completeness. It's not just that I have ceased to want to kill you, but it is that I love you and I want the best for you. Love your enemies, Jesus said. That's what happens when the Prince of Peace comes. It's not just when a husband and wife proclaim a ceasefire in their home for the sake of the kids. It's when they move beyond that and that hostility is replaced with harmony with completeness, with health, spiritual health, and holiness. That is what shalom is. It is more than just a quiet life without conflict. It is the presence 
of such a deep love and desire for one another. That is what it means when the Prince of Peace moves in. Now, if you look over to Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing about that kind of peace. And I realize that uh, this doesn't seem like much of a Christmas message, what I'm about to read to you, but understand, this is what Christ came to do. Remember, we said last night that there are three objects that you need to keep in your mind's eye and remember speaks for the Christmas story. It's not just the cradle. It's not just the baby being born. But he was a baby that was being born as the savior of the world. And so you have to remember that the cradle leads to the cross, inevitably. And the cross results in a crown that Jesus died for our sins and Jesus now lives in victory and is coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So you have a cradle, yes, God became flesh and dwelt among us. You have a cross, yes, he is and was the savior of the world. He wears a crown and is seated at the right hand of the Father today and is superintending every detail of your life and everything going on in the world. And so Paul, writing to the Ephesians, a bunch of Gentiles about how God is the great peacemaker, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he made peace between Gentiles and Jews. Now, I realize that doesn't seem like a very big deal to you and me today. But understand, there is no racial conflict today. By the way, the racial conflict in this country is worse today than it has ever been in history. It has not led up. It has not been mitigated. It is not less. It is not better than it used to be with all the laws we've made and with all the, quote, progress we've made. Understand the differences between the races is as deep as it ever was. And for that matter, the divides running through America politically and uh, culturally has never been so deep. There's never been a greater divide. Now, Paul is writing about the great divide between Jews and Gentiles that was, in Bible times, insurmountable. Okay? Insurmountable. Verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. And by the way, that was that was a, an insult. That was not said to describe them physically. It was a physical description, but it was an insult. Call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, he says, remember again, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now let's just pause a moment 
and put a few things on the screen. Let's notice what Paul said about these people. He said, you were separated from Christ. You weren't just separated. You were aliens. You were aliens. Just the thought of illegal aliens in the great struggle we have going on in our country right now brings up many political feelings among people. But understand, Paul is saying to these Gentiles, you were aliens. You didn't belong. You were strangers to his promises. You were on the outside looking in. And because of that, you were without hope and without God in the world. How do you like the idea that God would say that about you? You're separated from Christ. You're an alien from his blessings. You're a stranger to his promises. You're without hope and without God in the world. Understand, that's who all of us were, not just as Gentiles, but as sinful human beings born into this world. That's who we are. That's who we were without Christ. No hope and without God. But now something is different. And he doesn't go into a lot of detail about all the things that are different now. He could have named a hundred different things about us now uh, that we have been converted. But he sums it up just by saying this. You have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus has made all the difference in your life. Now notice how he does describe that taking place. And notice what he says about the word peace. Remember, he is the prince of peace. Taking up in verse 14, it begins with the word for. That word means because. Because. You have been brought near through the blood of Christ because. Because God has done something. What has he done? First of all, he is our peace. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. What were the two? Jew and Gentile with this huge wall that separated the two. The, the wall along the southern border of America is not the first wall that was built. There was one thousands of years ago between Jews and Gentiles, and it was the law of God. But understand, what was intended as a life-giving way of life was a, a burdensome ordinance that was dragging down people to hell, trying to earn their way to God. He's not saying that the law became bad, that God tore it down and threw it away. Jesus instead fulfilled it, made it possible for us to be guiltless before the law, regardless of which side you were on, to be guiltless through faith in Jesus Christ by his blood. He continues. Making one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He didn't just stop the hostility, he killed it at its core. He caused these people who once hated one another to love one another and to see themselves one in Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. We were separated from Christ, alienated from his blessings, strangers to his promises, without hope and without God. But now we have been brought near and we have been made one through the blood of Christ. Notice what it said in that last section of verses about peace. First off, Jesus is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace. He doesn't just teach peace. He doesn't just champion peace. He is our peace. Have you ever heard that old expression? I think we have it on the screen. No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. Do you see it? The only way to have peace is to know Christ. If you know Christ, you have the capacity to know peace in all of your relationships. And most of all, with the one you have the greatest problem with. And you know who that is? It's you. It's you. It is easier for me to forgive others who have wronged me and to try to love them in Christ and to be at peace with them than it is oftentimes for me to forgive myself, to love myself, and to live in peace with myself. But you see, if you cannot find peace in Christ with yourself, you in reality will never know peace with others because you will always be at war in your heart. Jesus came to give you peace with yourself, to make it possible for you to forgive yourself of the things he's long since forgiven us of, those things that Satan still, remember, he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before the Father. He accuses us to ourselves. And he comes and tells us what awful, rotten, guilty people we are. But because of Christ, I can say, Satan, all of that is forgiven. It is forgotten. It is cast, according to the psalmist, into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He has separated that from me as far as the east is from the west. We studied last week, he is a God who remembers how we are put together. He understands and he remembers, he knows our frame and he loves us anyway, even when he knows us thoroughly. He forgives us completely and he loves us eternally. He is our peace. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To them that believe on his name. Notice in verse 15 he says, not only is he our peace, but he makes peace. On the last night before his crucifixion, in the upper room, Jesus said to the disciples, peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. A little while later, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have some tribulation. But be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus gives us peace. He makes peace. He is our peace. And understand this, God doesn't give us peace just so that we will be peaceful. He gives us peace so that we will be peacemakers. A peacemaker is different than a peacekeeper. In our world, we see and we hear about peacekeeping forces. Again, it's man's best. Just keep people from killing each other. Just help stop the hostilities. But Jesus doesn't keep peace. He makes peace. He gives us love and completeness and harmony and makes it possible for the bitterest of enemies to become one in Christ. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called what? Somebody say it, do you know? The children of God, right? A third thing he said in this text, he not only is our peace, he not only makes peace, but verse 17 says, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Wherever you were on the dividing, whatever side of the wall of hostility, he has made and preached peace and brought us together. John 20 and 21, after his resurrection, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father hath sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's preaching peace to you and me today, that we would follow in his steps as peacemakers in this world. And you know they did that. Paul, Peter, John, James, Jude, these men <clears throat> in their writings, in their letters, all speak of peace. They became preachers of peace. They prayed for peace. They helped negotiate peace between people who were separated and alienated from God and God himself. I'm convinced that the rest of the apostles, though they may not have written letters that are contained in our Bibles, they did the very same thing. They became preachers of peace. Well, Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would be not only our wonderful counselor, as great as that is, a mighty God who could do the impossible in our lives, the impossible in the world. Not only is he our forever father, one who leads us and guides us, protects us, provides for us, but he is our prince of peace. And I want to say to you, it is in Jesus that the only place that real peace will ever be found. Well, after a long night that lasted for years, for Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth, 
on December the 25th, 1864. He opened the window of his study and he heard something that inspired a renewed hope in his life and a renewed confidence. And he penned this poem that became our Christmas carol. I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolve from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. May the angel's song be our experience and may it be our song as well as we prepare to finish out this year and anticipate a new one to be God's people here on earth. Thank you for coming this morning. I know that we all have our traditions and we all have our um, plans and things we do on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But thank you for making these services last night and today a part of that. And I pray that God has spoken to all of us and reminded us of truths maybe long since forgotten or at least not thought of. And uh, may it refresh and renew us in this season of our Savior's birth. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And that babe in a cradle who carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is sufficient. And Father, if he is sufficient for the weight of the world, he is sufficient for our struggles and our pains today. Thank you that he is our Prince of Peace. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.